What happens when a radio broadcaster gets let go from his sports talk job? Well, he tries to figure out what he wants to do next for a career. And in the meantime, joins the 4 million other podcasts on the internet. And the John Cast is born. Join me each week as I talk to guests I find interesting or entertaining from the world of sports, play-by-play broadcasting, or whatever else sounds fascinating to me at the moment. The John Cast is what I'm doing until I figure out what I'm doing. Subscribe, download, and I hope you learn something along the way. Chad, what are you drinking today? Uh, I'm drinking uh, some water this morning, John. Pretty, pretty straightforward. That's very, it's very healthy of you. I've got my coffee every morning and my Yeti coffee cup. This thing's amazing. Um, little oat milk in there. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah. Great, great start to the day so far. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome to the John Cast podcast. By the way, you can support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. If enough people do it, maybe I'll use a portion of the money to do something cool, like leave a nice tip at a coffee shop or something like that and tell you all about it. But you can get that link um, right on the description of the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And my guest today is uh, somebody I'm really, really excited to talk to today. He's Chad McGee. He's the director of meditation training at the University of Wisconsin Athletics and the co-founder of Inner Edge Meditation. And he joins me here today on the John Cast podcast. So welcome into this, uh, this episode, Chad. So can you tell me how you got to become the director of meditation training at the University of Wisconsin? Yeah, well, first, I mean, thanks for having me on, John. Super excited to, to talk with you. So yeah, I mean, the, my, my journey to this job was anything but straight or planned. Uh, it was uh, kind of a uh, a personal practice of mindfulness and meditation for years that I knew I was benefiting from. Uh, and, and for the past 10 years, I've been curious about how I could share that with other folks. Uh, I started when I was a public school teacher and I started to share with the kids in my classroom, started to share with colleagues after school. Uh, they were benefiting. Uh, then I joined a group on campus that does research on mindfulness and meditation. And there I trained with a huge range of populations, law enforcement officers, corporate groups, healthcare groups, and, and athletes. Uh, some of the athletes that we trained with were a group of retired NFL players. Um, and we did an eight-week training with them. And we didn't know what would happen. You know, would these guys say, you know, I played in the league for 10 years, like mindfulness meditation. This is some hippy-dippy woo-woo stuff. And that is, that's, that's not what they found. They found it to be beneficial and rigorous. Uh, some of them were still on staff at the Wisconsin Athletic Department. So they said, hey, let's start to pilot this with a few teams and kind of see what happens. So we did that. That went well. And then over the course of a couple of years, continued to grow. And eventually it made sense for Wisconsin athletics and for me to, to dive in and do this first of its kind position. Man, I, I mean, we've got, I've got so many questions for you already. I, they're just all in my mind. Um, are you calm like all day long? If you're the director of meditation training, are, are you somebody that just is just like cool vibed out all day long? Uh, no. Oh, uh, okay. So, <laughs> so it's, um, I mean, I think uh, to, to a certain degree, I mean, like your question is an interesting one because I think, um, you know, first what it, it wakes up in me is if somebody's interested in teaching meditation, you know, my job's director of meditation training, a lot of the teaching comes from my own personal practice. In the words of one of my friends, the, the teaching in mindfulness and meditation uh, comes from the teacher's nervous system. It's, it's less the words that are being transmitted and more kind of like that felt sense, that nervous system, the nervous system interaction. So the personal practice of the teacher really matters. But I honestly, 
there's somewhat of a misconception, I think, about mindfulness and meditation that is just chill, like that it's yeah. just relaxed. I think that's part of it. Absolutely. And that's really, really important. But it doesn't mean that we don't experience strong emotions. I mean, I get frustrated. I get angry. Uh, those are normal things to experience. Uh, the question, I think, is do we have the skills to work with things like frustration and anger and, you know, or big positive emotions, excitement, joy uh, when they come so that they don't kind of topple us over. So uh, I think it's, it's kind of like, we want to be able to experience like the full range of what life has to offer. And that's what meditation is about. Not kind of blissing ourselves out and zenning ourselves out, but like actually showing up for the fullness and immediacy of whatever is happening in our life. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good point is that it's, it's not about being in this one zombie like state of, of calmness. It's, it's about dealing with the emotions when they occur and, and how to, you know, subdue them or calm them, or uh, I don't know, I guess, work through them. Is that, is that the right way? Am I describing yeah, it correctly? I, yeah. I think, you know, I, I, the way I like to think about it, this comes from a, from a teacher um, who says, you're perfectly okay exactly as you are, and you can get better. So if we think about that in terms of like the emotions we're experiencing, there's no emotion that's right or wrong that we're experiencing. It's just, can we work with it to move it in the direction of our goals, whether that's athletic goals, you know, well-being goals, professional goals, whatever that may be, family goals. Uh, and so having the skills to be able to do that is, is kind of what matters. Do you remember the first time you meditated? When was that? How'd you, how, how, did you read a book? Did you, how'd you, how'd you get to that point? Yeah. I mean, kind of, there's kind of two, two responses that come up to when, when you ask that the first is, I think some of the first times that I meditated is when I was a kid, just playing sports. Uh, and there was that sense of concentration, that sense of alertness, that sense of awareness, that sense of feeling connected. And I wouldn't have called it meditating at that time, but that was what I was doing. My mind was getting trained in those moments. So I think all of us have had these experiences of mindfulness and meditation throughout our lives. But then when I started to do it more formally, uh, I was in my early 20s uh, and, and was, you know, looking for something. I was dealing with some, some challenge, some difficulty in my life. I wanted to work with it and deal with it. And I sat down to meditate. Uh, and it honestly felt like I was locked in a telephone booth with a lunatic. Uh, and that was just me with my own thoughts, right? Um, and uh, and then in talking with the the people who were kind of teaching that that class, I thought I was the only one who experienced that, but I wasn't. This is just part of having a human mind. Is it can just get crazy up there sometimes. And uh, and then and then I was excited because then there was a path, there was a training, there was a way to work with that, so that that lunatic that was up there bouncing around in my mind wasn't the one running the show. Uh, that I could create a little bit of space uh, to be able to choose kind of how I wanted to orient in my life. So, okay. So that's the first time early twenties, where did you get your, your training? It, it, I mean, how do you, how do you get training for meditation? How does that work? Yeah. That, interesting question. Cause there is no kind of central licensing body for mindfulness and meditation teachers, at least at this point in the journey. Um, I think at some point there, there will be, you know, I think in large part, I think about this work is, you know, the frame I have for it is strength and conditioning for the mind. And, you know, when the first strength coach showed up, there was no licensing body for that group either. Uh, and, and now there is. And I think this work's going to be on a similar trajectory, both in terms of licensing, but also in terms of adaptation in sport and into life. Uh, so the best training, I think, for a mindfulness and meditation teacher is their personal practice. 
it's what their meditation practice looks day in and day out. The retreats that they go on, like kind of those deepening trainings, the communities that they continue to practice with. And then with that said, there are professional trainings that come where one can learn skillful ways to communicate these practices. A lot of my training came from uh, being embedded for six years at the Center for Healthy Minds, this world-leading neuroscience research group on the impacts of meditation. And they're collaborating with you know, the best folks in the world at researching and training in meditation. So one of the best ways, I think, for somebody to know if their meditation you know, teacher or company or whatever they're interested in uh, has quality is look to see who they're practicing with. And if those people have rigor and quality, that's one of the ways that we know that person probably also has some quality as well. That's interesting. The Center for Healthy Minds. So what does the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin, what does that, what does that do? What, what is its purpose? Sure. So, so the mission of the center is to uh, relieve suffering and increase well-being through a scientific understanding of the mind. Uh, so it's uh, 15 PhD level scientists all working around this central question of what constitutes a healthy mind. And what do we know scientifically about that? Uh, and what can we train for? So, you know, for example, one of the things that we know scientifically now is this simple truth of neuroplasticity. And that's that our brain is constantly learning. It's constantly changing. And we used to think by the time folks got to 20, maybe 25 years old, their brains were done developing. And it was just kind of a slow decline from there on out. And the modern neuroscience has proven that's just not true. We're learning for our entire lives. And in fact, there's particular qualities that we can train the mind for, like attention, like resilience, like connection, like purpose, uh, that are skills of mind that we can train just like we can train physically for skills in the body. What have they found out about mindfulness? What type of studies do they conduct with mindfulness or, or how do they figure out how that actually impacts a person? Yeah, there's, there's a huge range. I mean, there's, there's some really cool research that I'm, I'm kind of excited about that we just published. Part of my work um, before focusing on, on athletes more was working in, with law enforcement officers. And I still do a bunch with, with law enforcement officers as well. And uh, some of the research there that we just published after officers engaged in, in an eight-week training, practicing about 10 minutes a day, like pretty low threshold for practice, is we found they had reduced perceived stress, uh, reduced anxiety and depression, improved sleep quality, and reduction in PTSD symptoms. So those are all four like pretty major things, right? That I think a wide range of folks would be interested in. And we found that just from about 10 minutes of practice a day, we saw positive movements in all four of those areas. So you've worked with law enforcement before. How, how long did you work with law enforcement and what, what was that like? Yeah, so I've been working with, with law enforcement for probably five or six years. Uh, and when I first started, I'd never, I, I didn't grow up around law enforcement, you know, in my family, I had no real experience. So I started to do ride-alongs right away just to get a sense of the culture, get a sense of the the speed, the kind of what they were asked to do. And then we started to do a variety of, of trainings and research contexts. And I still continue to train with law enforcement. Now my law enforcement work is mostly with FBI SWAT teams, uh, which are have a lot in common with uh, the athletes that I get to train with as well. These are high performers. They're high performers physically and they're high performers mentally. And actually there was, a, there was an experience, this was earlier this summer, I was with a, with a SWAT team and and one of the, the senior team leader told me this story. He said that when, when a SWAT team goes in for their operation, for their mission, they go into high intensity, high consequence, no fail environments. 
and they're expected to bat a thousand. And so when they finish, he doesn't want to hear good job from his supervisors. What he wants to hear is thank you for being consistent because being consistent is hard. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of energy. And I think that applies definitely to like the high performers here at Wisconsin athletics, right? Like how do you continue to do those little things, find those small hinges that are going to swing big doors so that you can show up and perform in, in consistent ways. I think being part of a SWAT team, you I mean, I think that's, you talk about mindfulness and I'm guessing that's being present, being in the present moment. Um, I don't know how you cannot be in the present moment if you're on a SWAT team, right? Right. Absolutely. So that's one of the things that's really interesting about mindfulness is for a lot of folks, that sense of mindfulness, that sense of presence, that sense of, you know, being where your feet are. Oftentimes we only experience it when the situation kind of forces us to experience it. So that's kind of, I think what you're pointing to, right? Like on a, on a SWAT team in those situations, the situation forces you to pay attention. So for a lot of folks, they experience these qualities of mindfulness uh, in other activities. Like I mentioned, when I was a kid, a lot of people experience this naturally when they're playing sports or when they're outside or, you know, we're in Wisconsin. So people talk about experiencing it in their deer stands all the time. Like, but those are all, context dependent. So what I get really interested in is how can we train for those qualities of mind that aren't dependent on those contexts, like the external situation, but are more dependent on the situation that's happening in our own mind. Can we train to experience those more often so that it's less random and more of a baseline from which we can operate? Okay. So you work with University of Wisconsin student athletes on several different teams. And does everyone buy into this right away? What, what's that first time with somebody like, um, and I don't know, do you ever get like, oh, great. Now we're going to, where's the chance? Where's the, you know, everything like that. Yeah. It, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I think initially there, there's a couple of things that go into that. So one, I mean, sometimes I'll even make a joke, you know, like, Hey, I'm Chad Mickey. I'm a meditation teacher. You may have expected robes, tie dye and thought we were going to be chanting. Uh, that's not what we're going to do today. So just kind of disarm it from the top because there's so much baggage and connotation that comes with with meditation. Uh, and typically the teams that 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 I've trained with, there's somebody on that team, a coach, you know, strength coach, sport coach, who has done the training themselves. Uh, like that's how we got started with the team here. You know, it was the head strength coach for football who was a part of that retired NFL player training who said, hey, you want to come do some stuff with the team? So then he speaks first, kind of vouches for the training vouches for the work that I've done with them. And then there's that transfer of credibility, right? Then the guys are open to kind of explore for themselves. And then once they see that this is, oh, this is grounded in science, this is done in similar populations, you know, like such as law enforcement or SWAT teams uh, that they may culturally identify with. And then they see it as a training. I mean, and you know this, John, like athletes, especially elite athletes are the best in the world at training. Typically, they're thinking about physical training. So once they understand that this is just a rigorous mental training, then they get it. They're on board and they're looking for those small fractional advantages, right? In sport, how often do we see things like 1% better every day? You know, all the time. And what are we doing for our mental game to get 1% better? For a lot of us, we're just hoping that it works out. We end up in this mental training paradox of talking about the importance of the mental game without actually training for it. So I think some of those factors go into uh, the, the student athletes being open uh, and then they start to practice themselves and they experience the benefits. With that being said, I'm not trying to tell you that 100% of the people in the room say, this is incredible, sign me up, I'm all for it. Uh, but we probably get, you know, 
off the off the top, I'd say like 50, 60 percent immediately want to do a whole lot more. And then 30, 40 percent are like, you know, it kind of sounds interesting. I'll kind of see as it goes. And then there's always going to be a few that say, you know what? Not really my jam. And that's totally fine. Yeah. So you work with the football team, the men's basketball team, the volleyball team at the University of Wisconsin. Am I missing any, any other? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of teams now, especially that I've been able to join full time softball, rowing, um, soccer, uh, lo- lots of a variety of teams, tennises, golfs, um, a lot of the teams. Yeah. So are there any challenges uh, are there any differences, I guess, or unique challenges to each sport or is it all kind of the same or do, do some of the, the female athletes versus the male athletes, like how does, how does that all uh, work? Are there differences for different sports? Yeah, I, I think it, there, there are and there aren't, you know, I think there's, you know, like one of the things that's going to be true across all of the sports is the need to train attention. So, for example, like in sport, how often do we say one rep at a time, you know, one play at a time, next play, those sorts of things. The skill that underlies that is attention. So for a golfer, are they thinking about their, you know, approach shot on on the sixth hole when they're on like the tee for the seventh? That's attention. For basketball, you know, their thought on the last possession, that sort of thing when they're in this possession. So some of that is true. One of the big differences, I think, between some of these sports is how to work with emotion during the sport, right? So the intensity and the emotion of being a defensive lineman versus being, you know, a golfer are completely different and what's required there. And so having the awareness to know what the kind of state is when one is at their best and then how to regulate to experience that more often can look different. But even with that being said, it's not like all defensive linemen are the same or all golfers are the same or all volleyball players are the same. And we see this as, you know, even fans, you can see one player may show up and they're intense. They are, they look like they play their best when they're angry. Uh, and in others, it's more of a relax. It's more subdued. It's more calm. And there's no right way. There's no wrong way. It's just kind of having the self-awareness to know what's best for them and then training to experience that more often. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really cool because you're right. There are some players or some athletes that need to get, get pumped up to be their best. And that's kind of the way they've always performed like that. And then there is the moments, uh, as, as a team gets into the postseason, those moments get more challenging, more pressure filled, I'm assuming. And I know you were in Pittsburgh with the final four with the volleyball team. And I mean, they go all the way to the championship match. There's a lot of pressure. There are different moments, a lot different than a non-conference matchup in, in late August. So um, what are some of the challenges that the athletes have during a, a moment like that, that you're trying to help them with? Does it change at all once the moment starts to become greater and greater? And now there's one more game left. So the, the game doesn't change, right? Right. The um, what they're asked to do doesn't change, but what can change is how they perceive it. Right. Uh, and even to connect back to, you know, what we talked about with the law enforcement research, we saw a reduction in perceived stress. Uh, so that doesn't mean the stress was any different, like for the officers from the start of when they did the say week training to the end of the day week training, but they perceived it differently. So I think similarly for athletes, there is more stress and pressure in a national championship match. Like we'd be insane to say that there's not, uh, but how does one perceive it? Does one get swept away in that? Or is one able to actually become present? And, and actually there's a story of, this was in, in last year's volleyball uh, run 
uh, in the Elite Eight match um, uh, with Wisconsin playing playing Florida, and the match started to get away a little bit, right? Like Florida was going on a run, uh, and in one of the timeouts, uh, Kelly Sheffield, head coach, had, had walked away for a second as he tends to do, and the, the players were just kind of there with each other. Uh, and Molly Haggerty, senior on the team, kind of heartbeat of a team sort of person, uh, got everyone's attention and told them, we can do this. Be where your feet are, which is one of the lines and practices that we talk about all the time. And that just means have your mind and body in the same place, right? Like, here we are. Feel this breath come in and out. Feel the sensations that are happening in your feet. They have the skill, the talent, the ability, the hard work to go after it. They just have to relax, get present, and then go attack. And so I think in those big moments, it's just having the skills to be able to, is there going to be a surge of anxiety or worry or fear? Sure. No problem. Have the skill to be able to reset. It's kind of like training, I, I guess, in any other sense, right? Like that's why you train for those moments, right? hundred percent. So, you know, we, you know, there's an old line, you know, in, in moments of intensity, we fall back to the level of our training that comes I, like I first heard that in the military context. And again, typically when we think about that, we're thinking about physical training. Right. And that, of course, is really, really important. What we're talking about here is what happens when we train for kind of the mental, emotional skills. And then when those pair together, when the physical skills line up with those mental, emotional skills, then we're really rocking and rolling. And that's one of the things that gets me super fired up about the work we're able to do here at Wisconsin is this like this morning, like I was just at football practice, uh, you know, go to volleyball practice, able to join their film sessions, able to you know, be on the field with the softball team so that this mental training and the physical training is integrated. It's just part of how they operate. And then when we, again, stack those two things together, kind of create a baseline uh, that they can't fall below. Yeah. Do the student athletes tell you that they use this outside of athletics now that they are more equipped and, and are learning all these methods? Do you, do you have student athletes come up to you and say, actually, I, I use this before test. I use this to do this or to do that. Yeah. All the time. Uh, so the, I mean, the way I frame the work is we're training the mind for performance and well-being. Uh, and these two things are, are deeply intertwined and, and performance doesn't just mean athletic performance. It can mean academic performance, you know, or performance in the community. Uh, and so here that all the time, that, that example, right. I got nervous before a test. I did a practice, was able to calm down and then do better on the test or, People talk all the time also in their relationships. You know, we live in an age of distraction. Our attention is being vied for by so many people and by so many companies that are working unbelievably hard to get our attention. And this takes a toll on our well-being and on our performance. So even in our relationships, people have told me like, hey, you know, I noticed I was reaching for my phone and instead I could feel that impulse. I just set it down and then I just talked to the person I was with, right? So yeah. It kind of, it shows up across all the domains of our life. You brought up the phone. I was about to show you the phone. I actually have my questions for you on the phone. So there's a good reason why I'm holding the phone during this interview, <laughs> but man, I mean, this, this thing, this, this, I mean, this is changing the way, I mean, and people grow up with it now. I mean, you and I, we, we didn't have this when we were kids. We didn't have this as teenagers. At least I didn't, I didn't had my first cell phone and it wasn't anything like a smartphone in my early twenties. So, and, and even, even without it, I still am attracted to it. And then I have an eight year old daughter and she plays on the iPad and this thing scares me. Like when we talk about attention and being where your feet are, the phones definitely take that away from us at times. Wouldn't, would you, how, how do you view that? 
hundred percent. Um, if, uh, if we don't have an intentional relationship with technology, the technology is going to have detrimental impacts and the research couldn't be more clear on the impacts there. But that doesn't mean we're a victim. That doesn't mean we have to just sit by idly and, and kind of experience these negative effects. I think a lot of it has to, has to come down to what is our intention. So I can pick up my phone um, and I can, you know, text somebody, text a student athlete, you know, I can text a friend, text a colleague, and it can be, I can be aware of my intention is to connect with somebody, is to relate to somebody, to send a message of care, send a message of connection. So then when I pick up my phone, I'm embodying a deeper value of caring about people, of connecting with people, right? And that's a really positive thing that we want to endure. It's when we do it mindlessly, when we fall on automatic pilot and we're doing it without thinking, uh, then it turns detrimental. So one of the you know, simple practices that we do is I'll give athletes these the little blue dots. If you can, you know, think about going to like a garage sale and, you know, you write 75 cents on one of those little stickers. Uh, so give those to them and say, put these little blue dots, you know, a couple places in your life where when you see them, it reminds you to get present Kind of just check in with your body, maybe be where your feet are, maybe just take one breath. And a lot of student athletes will put it on their phone. So it's that little reminder. So when you just reach for it, on automatic pilot, oh, wait, do I actually want to, you know, scroll TikTok right now? Or was I just bored? Yeah. So those little reminders integrated through our lives can can teach us to have that space and, and bring that intentionality. Uh, being bored. That's, I mean, mm. what is being bored in the realm of mindfulness? Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of us uh, have a changed relationship to being bored because the moment we're bored, we just reach for our technology to yeah. fill that gap. And like you were saying, like for, for our generation, you know, when we were kids or teenagers, we didn't have that. You just sat there uh, and you had to experience boredom in a different way. Uh, and so I think there's a certain, you know, if we, in meditation, we, we can train a lot of different ways. And one of the ways are these integrated practices, really quick ones, like the blue dot on the phone, that's just integrated right into your daily life. Another is a base training practice. So that's a bit of a longer practice. So that could be, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, could be longer. Um, but if someone is sitting, you know, say a very simple practice for five minutes, and the practice is just kind of to be aware of the body and attention to the breath, just kind of steadying attention and just aware of that process, then sooner rather than later, an emotion of boredom is going to come up, right? Like that's going to happen for all of us. So when that emotion of boredom comes up, pretty quickly thereafter for a lot of folks, then they're going to experience that surge of like, oh, I want to reach for my phone or I want to do something else. But in mindfulness practice, we do something radical and we don't act on that emotion. We just watch it. We just let it happen. We just get familiar with boredom. And then boredom, a lot of times, an emotion like that will just kind of come up and then pass away. No problem. Or we start to get really curious with the process. What we're interested in becomes really interesting. So we can actually get interested in boredom. We can get interested in like our habits of mind around boredom. Uh, there's this amazing study where they did where they put people in a room, like just kind of like a blank-ish room, you know? And the only thing in the room was this uh, little buzzer. And they also had like a strap on their wrist and they didn't know, you know, what that strap was for. And they said, we'll be back in, you know, a couple minutes. We just have to go finish something, uh, the experimenter. And then what they uh, was, was that little button in the room produced an electric shock on their wrist. So people would press it and then they'd get a little shock. 
And, and they found that a lot of people preferred to give them give themselves electric shocks rather than be alone with their own thoughts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. And, and imagine if we could instead develop a relationship to be comfortable with our own thoughts, to be comfortable with that inner chatter uh, so that it wasn't hurting us. It wasn't a detriment, but we could almost develop a friendly relationship with our own mind, with our own emotions and work with it. And that's why I think, you know, we all have this, this inner life. We all have thoughts and emotions, but not all of us uh, have found a way to work with it, to give ourselves that inner edge, right? To have that ability to be with that experience. And when we do that, it's going to impact in cascading ways, all aspects of our performance and well-being. Yeah. So you talk about that friendly chatter and you said when you first meditated, you were with this, this, this lunatic, I think is the, the term you used. So <laughs> yeah. is it, and, and so when you're, when you meditate times I've tried to meditate too, you know, you get distracted, you start thinking about something and then you're like, Oh, I wonder what that, and then, so when you talk about observing that boredness, is that the same thing? Can you just observe your thoughts and then you're just like, they go away or, or what's going on there? So, yeah. So a couple things. I mean, so first the, probably the biggest myth and misconception of mindfulness meditation is that we're supposed to empty the mind or blank the mind or not have thoughts. That's just not possible. The mind produces thoughts like the lungs breathe. Uh, and a lot of people think they're bad at mindfulness and meditation because their mind is wandering. Also, it's not a problem when the mind wanders off and you notice it, that's a moment of mindfulness. And then you can choose what to do with your attention. And maybe it is sometimes, you know, we have to think thoughts. Thoughts aren't the problem, right? Like some thoughts are really helpful, but some of them aren't, right? We get caught up in these loops of thoughts that, that aren't very helpful. I mean, I like to think about it sometimes like buses. You know, if you're, if you want to go to like a particular part of town, uh, you head down to the bus stop and you look at the bus and you get on the bus that's taking you to the part of the town you want to go to. You don't just hop on any bus that comes through. You take a look and say, where's this one going? But with our thoughts, we end up just hopping on any thought that comes through. Or a lot of us tend to hop on the same bus a lot uh, that tends to go on the same circles, some of which don't get us anywhere. So it's just having that ability to step back and notice, is this a thought that's going in the direction that's going to be helpful for me, that's supportive for me, for my performance, for my well-being, for those around me, or is it not? And then choosing to get on that or not choosing to get on it. Do you find that mindfulness, uh, maybe student athletes tell you that not only does it help them perform, like we talked about with tests, with athletic performance, how about sleep? Because I think one of the one thing that uh, a lot of people talk about is I can't sleep. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about work or for a student athlete. I'm thinking about the test. I'm thinking about the game. I'm thinking about this. Um, have you found that, that that this can benefit people when they're trying to sleep? All the time. Okay. Uh, the the science could not be more clear on the benefits of these sorts of practices for sleep. And I hear it all the time from student athletes, from coaches. Uh, that they use these practices for sleep. So the typical arc for these practices is they show up first on the recovery side of things, like sleep, like recovery after you know an intense competition or a workout. And then slowly it starts to integrate into performance. So on that recovery side of thing, on the sleep side, like you say, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and somebody's trying to go to sleep. And oftentimes it's easy to find oneself kind of spinning with thoughts about what happened earlier in the day or what may be coming later. And it's not like the person wants to be thinking those thoughts. They're just happening. Uh, and so being able to recognize, oh, this is a thought that's happening. It's not a problem. 
and then choosing to bring attention back into the body and steady attention into the body, the body's tired and the body will naturally fall asleep. So, I mean, I've heard this many times. People say like, hey, Chad, don't take this the wrong way, but I fall asleep to your voice every night. Because <laughs> they'll just do a practice and they'll get yeah. halfway through and then they're gone. And that's wonderful, right? Like, because we know as if sleep gets in line, then all sorts of other positive outcomes will follow. Yeah. Is that one of the ways you can tell that mindfulness is having an effect on like an individual student athlete or a team is, is sleep? And then what else does that look like when you know, like, okay, I think they're, I, I'm seeing the benefits of, of what I'm trying to teach. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of ways to pick up on it. We can pick up on it in quantitative ways and qualitative ways. So quantitatively, like we're starting to see in, in some of the data uh, with some of the teams that sleep is improving. Uh, that the amount of hours they're sleeping is going up and the quality of sleep that they're reporting is improving. Uh, we also see in, in some of the data that athletes are reporting the intensity of their workouts as being less intense. Even though the workout is just as intense, the way they perceive it is less intense. And of course, if that's the case, then they're able to kind of go longer, go more, or have a deeper sense of resilience. So those are all really positive things. We're also seeing some uh, some early gains uh, potentially in the weight room. Uh, and there's a lot of science to suggest that with this sort of awareness of the body, we call it proprioception scientifically, awareness of the body from the body's perspective, uh, that we would expect kind of physical gains to happen. That's great for athletes. But if we think about that for you know non-elite athletes like me, uh, then me. just being a healthier, happier person uh, you know, and, and, and working out or somebody who's recovering from an illness or an injury or a car accident, uh, and those gains there. So, uh, we see them in all those ways. And then in athletes all the time, just report anecdotally or qualitatively their experiences, how it shows up for them to be more focused, to be more relaxed. I mean, on the relaxed side of things, you know, when we think about relaxed in a high intensity, high performance situation, we call it poise. Uh, but it's, it's the same quality. The only thing that's different is the situation in which it's experienced. And so athletes will report that kind of feels like things slow down a little bit, right? Like they're not in such a rough state. They're able to see things clearly. You know, we may call this being in the zone or being in the flow. Uh, and there's good scientific evidence that says that mindfulness supports experiencing flow more often. And then I hear it from student athletes all the time. In five to 10 years, where do you want the mindfulness training at the University of Wisconsin to be? And will we see this more at other universities around the country? Or where do you think it'll be? And where do you want yeah. it to be? Yeah. Um, so I think um, this training is going to be integrated into sport deeply in the next five to 10 years. I think, um, you know, with, we were talking about strength and conditioning for the body. You know, originally, you know, most elite athletes weren't doing it. They thought it would wear their bodies out, right? Make them bulky, heavy sort of thing. Uh, and then a few athletes started to do it. A bit of science started to point to the benefits, and now it's integrated at every level of sport. I think we're going to be on a similar trajectory with this sort of work, that this sort of training is going to be just part of how teams operate. And we're starting to see that, like with the teams here at Wisconsin that have been at it for a few years with the with football, volleyballs, and, and some of these other teams, that when they show up to the University of Wisconsin Athletics Department, Mindfulness meditation training is just part of what happens. It's just part of what it takes to perform and sustain at this high level. Uh, so there'll probably be the growth of that here at Wisconsin with more coaches doing it, 
um, you know, more staff, more people in positions like mine. And I do think we'll start to see it at other universities too, and other levels of sport, whether it's youth sport, professional sport, this just continue to get integrated because the impacts um, can't be denied. Uh, and it's uh, like everything in, in sport, it's a copycat league. So if it's working somewhere, I think other people are going to get interested and try to figure out how to work it in their environments. You know, you say you joke too when you first meet the student athletes, like with the tie dye and the robes and everything like that. And there is a lot of, I think, uh, I don't know, lack of a better term, this kind of like woo woo kind of um, mindset be behind uh, a lot of of meditation. Um, but, but where do you fall when you do see um, what some would consider like woo woo meditation? Um, I mean, what, what do you think? Because aren't there a lot of similarities, I mean, between the two as far as like yeah. concentration in mind and breathing and everything like that? For sure. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of paths up the mountain, so to speak. Right. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of teachers for, for different folks. Uh, and so who are the right teachers to be in sport environments? You know, we know from all sorts of research, whether it's mindfulness research or education or therapy, uh, that the participants, the students need to perceive the instructor as a credible person. Uh, and so if I showed up, you know, in a way that was more on the, on the, on the kind of that stereotypical side of meditation, then nobody would listen. Right. Um, but that's not who I am. Right. So I'm just being an authentic version of myself. So I think as this work moves forward, there's people need to have um, teachers need to have meditation teachers interested in this work, uh, a long history of their own personal practice. It's really easy to teach a superficial level of mindfulness and meditation. Uh, and I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in it being um, just a flash in the pan. Uh, but in order for that to happen, somebody has to have years and years of personal practice and skillful ways to teach that practice. And then they also need to be culturally appropriate for that environment. Like they need to be uh, able to kind of hang out and people feel like they're, you know, viable. I was a college soccer player. I, you know, enjoy being in these environments. I, you know, I oftentimes feel like when I started to do the work with law enforcement folks and, and athletes, oh, I'm just like hanging out with my friends. I just enjoy being around these people. I enjoy it when somebody's checking in from their meditation and they swear in part of their check-in. In some meditation environments, that would be very inappropriate for the cultural norm. So you just got to find the right fit and kind of make sure the person is a is a good match. Okay. So I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like I've listened to the Oprah Winfrey podcast when she had, was it Eckhart Tolle? And mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff to me, there, I, I don't know. I see the similarities there. It's just presented in a different way with somebody like that. I mean, do you... I, I would completely agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of the teachers that work in this area, you know, we're pulling from thousands of years yeah. of insight and wisdom and through our own personal experience and then offering those in ways that, you know, can be useful to those that we're teaching. So, um, yeah, I have, I have deep respect for a lot of, of teachers, um, Sharon Salzberg's of the world, Jack Cornfield's of the world, uh, that... I just don't think would be viable teachers, uh, you know, in the front of the weight room. It's just not, not the right fit for them. Yeah. Um, have, are you aware of like any studies? Cause I'm, I'm curious as to like studying the brain, obviously. Um, and can they, can they look at the brain and kind of 
see the differences pre post meditation during meditation and, and kind of see the benefits that way? Yes, we can. Um, so there's lots of really interesting neuroscience that does exactly that. And, um, and this and the technology that supports it is really taken off in the past 20 or 30 years. So one of the ways we do that is with fMRIs, uh, with you know brain scans. Um, and so there's an amazing study uh, where they put people in the fMRI, and there were two groups of people. There were long-term meditators, so people with lots of practice experience, and, and meditation-naive practitioners or folks with no practice experience. And in this study, um, the uh, participants would hear a tone, just the sound, and then they had a band on their wrist and they had really hot water came through. So it was like a shock to their, their wrist. And so for the participants who had no practice experience, no mindfulness or meditation practice experience, they would hear that sound and the part of their brain that's responsible for perception of pain would shoot up just hearing the sound, right? Uh, and then that, and then the stimulus would come, that pain would come and that part of their brain still stayed high. And then after the stimulus or pain was gone, the part of their brain responsible for perception of pain stayed really elevated for a long time, eventually coming back down to baseline. And then for the folks with a lot of meditation experience, they would hear that sound and the part of their brain responsible for perception of pain stayed at baseline. It did not shoot up. And then the actual stimulus came, that shot came, shot way up. It actually was higher in intensity than those with no practice experience. So that kind of myth busts that zombie-like state of mindfulness. It says we're experiencing it with a deeper level of intensity. And then after that shock or that intense experience was gone, they came back down to baseline much more quickly. So I think all of us know what that feels like, right? Like the, the thought of a challenge can work us up in such a way that it's almost like it's there already. The brain doesn't know a difference between a real threat and a perceived threat. It reacts in all the same way. And we also know that experience of after difficulty is gone, we're still spinning out about it and experiencing the stress and mind and body as if it were still here. So I think there's, and there's many other studies like that that show we're literally rewiring the brain with these sorts of practices. Uh, Another question I had for you is, you know, when I think of this, I think of closing your eyes or perceiving, um, you know, touch feelings or, you know, listening intently or breathing and really focusing on breath and, you know, where it comes, are there other types of meditation? Cause then I start thinking of yoga and in, in yoga, not only are you breathing, but you're also trying to you know hold yourself and, and hold a position. Are there any other, and I also, by the way, I, I looked this up. I, I, I came across something called active meditation and that, that seems a little, uh, it's like, chanting and jumping up and down and things of, of that nature. And I don't know, it just seems like there are different ways besides what I, you know, traditionally think of just, you know, breathing and, and where do you stand on, on some of those other practices? Yeah, there's, there's a huge range of ways to practice these qualities of mind. So we're training the mind. Uh, that's what meditation is. It's simply training the mind and how we go about it can look a lot of different ways. So some of it may be that more kind of still paying attention to the breath. And that can be really powerful. Uh, but there's so many other ways, including uh, like one that's really popular with our, with our volleyball team is after warmups, uh, they'll you know, head back into the locker room you know, before they kind of come out for their you know, competition and transition from the warmup to the game jersey. And in that transition, 
feel the sensations of the, of the warm up as it comes off and then feel the sensations like the tactile touch of their game jersey going on. And that's the anchor that they steady their mind onto. So now all the work is done from warm up, all the film has been watched, all the years of training has happened. Then they can just be present, feel those sensations, and then go out and play, have fun, play with trust, play with freedom. But they use an anchor like that to be able to do it. So there's mindful movement can be a great one like yoga. And there's so many other mindful movement practices that we can do. So um, one that a lot of athletes use is mindful walking. Uh, so it's a really simple practice uh, where you just choose an anchor. You choose something to pay attention to. It could be sensations of your feet as they're making contact with the ground. So it's just the up and down of the feet. Mind wanders off to something else. No problem. Choose to bring it back. So athletes do that even during warmups, you know, whether it's on the football field or on the golf course, right? You know, 90% of golf is not playing golf. Uh, it's walking around and waiting. Uh, and so that walking up then becomes a way to train your mind to be steady and resilient. There's also really cool practices we can do to train the mind to embody purpose, to embody values, so that our ways of acting in the world become manifestations of our deeper values. Uh, and, and so many others. I mean, we need, we need a lot of time, John, to kind of continue <laughs> to dig into some of these because there's, there's so many cool ways that we can use meditation to train the mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you just said, I think we could uh, spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I'm out of questions. Is there anything I missed? Anything that you want to kind of let people know about uh, as far as uh, the mindfulness uh, at the University of Wisconsin or anything in your personal life? Yeah, I think, you know, for anybody listening to this, uh, who's, who's curious about it is to just kind of give it a shot, you know, see what happens. You know, you can check out some of the stuff that we've shared at University of Wisconsin. You can check out some of the stuff we're doing at Inner Edge Meditation um, or Calm or Headspace. There's lots of really great resources and just do it and see what happens. Be the scientist, you know, in your own life. You know, it's th this whole thing is a big experiment. None of us know exactly what we're doing or how it's all going to shake out. Uh, but we can use mindfulness and meditation and start to see the impact that it has in our own life. Uh, and I think there'll be benefits that, that'll, that'll hopefully keep you coming back and exploring more. Okay. Well, next time I come across something with mindfulness, you want to jump on the podcast again? We can talk about it. Let's do it. All right. Chad, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, John.